0: Welcome, you're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, um, we're continuing on with our Summer Psalms series, and today I've selected one of my favorite passages, which is Psalm 98. And before we begin, I'd like to remind ourselves again of some of the characteristics of the Psalms that David Holcomb had discussed previously. First is that the Psalms are poetry. They are more prose than proposition, more artwork than textbook. The Psalms are holy songs, poetic lyrics that were meant to be sung. And as a wise man once said, music is what emotions sound like. So the Psalms are not so much to be analyzed as they are to be experienced. The second thing to remember is that the Psalms are deeply personal they display and even model a covenantal relationship that exists between us and God. So the Psalms give a voice to the way that we interact with God in a way that can be very intimate and very deeply felt. So, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. And as I read this passage, I invite you to enter into the Scripture, not just only physically with your ears, but also spiritually and emotionally As well. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with a harp in the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. And you be seated. Now, if I had to give one word to describe Psalm 98, it would be the word celebration. And as I begin this message, I'd like to ask you to enter into a little uh, simple imagination exercise with me. I want you to think about a time when you just really celebrated. A time when you had some joy bubbling inside of you and you had the opportunity to share that joy with others around you. Maybe it was a birthday party or a recent graduation or a sports event. Maybe it was the birth of a son or daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter. Maybe it was a a simple sunset or your last visit to Handel's ice cream. I have quite a few celebrations that I can recall just off the top of my head. Like the very, very first moment that Debbie and I first found out that we were going to be grandparents. (laughs) Or worshiping with um, our friends at BCCL in the Philippines. Or... The Raiders beating the Chargers in overtime in the last game of the season, bouncing the Chargers from the playoffs, and putting the Raiders in. Good times. So, do you have a memory in mind? You have it in your head? Good. I want you to savor that memory for just a moment, and then I want you to set it aside, store it in your short-term memory, because later I want you to tap back into that memory, okay? First, I want to talk about singing a new song. Have you ever thought about why we should celebrate? I mean, we use the word celebration an awful lot here in the church, right? We celebrate communion. We celebrate things like Advent and Christmas and Easter. We sing phrases like shout for joy and raise our hands and dance before the Lord. Well, our scripture from Psalm 98 encourages extravagant, and I would even say excessive, celebration. And it begins with singing a new song. In fact, if you take a quick survey of the Bible, six of the Psalms in the NIV encourage us to sing a new song, as well as several times in the book of Isaiah. But then in the book of Revelation, it doesn't encourage us to sing a new song. Instead, if you read Revelation carefully, you'll notice that it says that they sang a new song, past tense. In other words, in the last days, in the triumphant victory of our Lamb, the redeemed and the heavenly beings sang. A new song to the Lamb. So, to understand what celebration is and why we celebrate, I think it's important to know what it is to sing a new song. What does that mean, anyway, to sing a new song? I think the message version of the Bible is helpful because it kind of taps a little bit more into the emotive uh, significance of this passage. So, we're going to use uh, the message version for just a second. And here's the first two verses of Psalm 98. Sing to God a brand new song, for he's made a world of wonders. He rolled up his sleeves. He set things right. God made history with salvation. He showed the world what he could do. We sing a brand new song because our God is setting things right, renewing and redeeming us and his creation. We sing a new song because we were once lost and now we are found. We sing a new song of God's saving love and faithfulness. And this is the why of celebration. So let's continue on with the message. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for God. Add on a hundred-voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to King God. Let the sea and its fish Give a round of applause with everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out encore and the mountains harmonize the finale. So now we see the how, the how of celebration with shouting and clapping and singing with loud instruments and voices, with jubilance and loud celebration. We sing with exuberance, with abandonment, with excess, with joy and laughter and applause. So that's the why and the how we sing a new song. But then again, what is that new song? Well, I have a theory, and this is how it goes. You've probably heard of me uh, referring to our God, our creator God, as the artist God. For he creates all of the universe for his pleasure and to his glory. Well, in this metaphor that we're seeing here, he's not just God the artist. He is God the Songwriter. He's writing this symphony of his universe. And each of us is a unique melody in this symphony. As he pours his grace out into the world, as he calls us out and redeems and renews us, he's writing this song into our hearts and out into our lives. He writes the new song, which is each of us. And then he puts these melodies together to form The rich and harmonically dense symphony Which is his church The Bride of Christ I'm going to show this to you real quick One voice Two voices And more That's how we sound together. More than one voice, more than two. It's all of us together kind of living in the kingdom, living in the invitation that he has for us. I love that the psalmist uses a band metaphor. If you've ever been in a band or a choir, you can probably relate to this. So you're, sing, you're sitting in an orchestra or in a choir and you start playing or you're singing and you're singing a note and everyone around you starts playing or singing with you. And all of these sounds enter the atmosphere and begin to sync in time and space together. Well, there's something that's very psychoacoustic, that is a word, psychoacoustic that happens, a physical resonance of frequency and timbre and tempo. And I think it's the perfect analogy for what God is doing in the universe. You see, our lives are the new song that the psalmist is referring to. When we live out our faith, when we live fully and completely in God's kingdom, and all of us are in tune to that God resonance, we sing the new song. When we love others, when we give ourselves away, we sing the new song. When we feed the poor and clothe the naked, when we care for the widow and orphan, we sing the new song. And when we enter into community together, especially when we are together in worship, the new song becomes his magnus opus, his grand work, his ultimate triumph. Once again, concluding Psalm 98, it says this, A tribute to God when he comes. When he comes to set the earth right, he'll straighten out the whole world. He'll put the world right and everyone in it. Does that kind of make sense to you? Now, I certainly believe that the psalmist intends that we literally sing a new song. In fact, obviously, Psalm 98 was a new song when the first time that they sang it. But the psalm has much deeper meaning when we understand that there is this metaphorical truth here, that your life and your life and your life and my life and our lives together are the new song, that our songwriting God is writing and performing in the universe. Now, I realized that preaching on celebrating isn't anywhere near as effective as simply celebrating. So this is not going to be a long message. We're going to have some time to sing and shout and maybe dance a little before we go home today. But I thought I would just share three things about the act of celebration that are important. Three things that are relevant to us individually and also as a church. And the first is celebration is a commemoration. A lot of our celebrations are commemorations. Like birthdays or anniversaries. In fact, uh, Debbie and I just celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary last Monday. Um, 35. (laughs) It's kind of weird because she's only 29. So that's the weirdest thing. Um, During our anniversary, uh, we played this game throughout the entire day. And it kind of went like this. I would share a special memory of our relationship together, usually something funny or unusual or meaningful. And then it would be her turn, and then she would share a memory as well. And we went back and forth all day long in this little game of memory ping pong. Not only was it fun to do, it was significant. Because it helped us to remind ourselves of all we had to be thankful for. All that is... Significant and meaningful in our lives, and it also reminded us of everything we have to look forward to in our future together. Through this little simple game we had, we commemorated our marriage. The Bible is also full of commemorative acts. Celebrations and feasts were a regular part of the calendar for the people of Israel. In fact, they had tons of celebrations. ...to signify important historical events... ...which God and his people like, uh, had... ...like Passover or Harvest. This is what uh, the writer Mark Buchanan says. There are more than 60 references... ...in scripture to celebration... ...and all but one or two of them are positive. Most of them are divine commands... ...to go and party. Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers... ...read like a string of invitations... ...to a non-stop whirlwind of, whirlwind of festival. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread... Celebrate the Feast of Harvest, celebrate the Feast of Weeks, celebrate the Passover, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Now understand that these were not quiet, sedate, well-mannered little tea parties. They were raucous, shout at the top of your lungs, and dance in the streets, week-long shindigs. The father of the prodigal, shouting to his servants, bring the fatted calf and kill it, let's have a feast, and celebrate. Celebrate. That's our God. You read this stuff enough, you start to get the sense that God is looking for just about any excuse to fire up the barbecue and invite the neighborhood over. I love that. This is one of the reasons that we use the historical church calendar in our worship. We don't just celebrate Easter, but all the aspects that make the resurrection more meaningful, including Ash Wednesday, the period of Lent, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and the fifty days of Easter tide that follows. Each of these acts of worship help to clarify, and signify, and focus us on God, hopefully in deeper and more meaningful ways. The second thing I want to mention is that um, celebration is a shared experience. See, celebrating is different than feeling joy or happiness. Feeling happy is primarily a personal thing, something that you have all by yourself. It's not until you share that feeling of happiness with others that it turns into celebration. Celebrating is intended to be a communal activity. Remember just a moment ago when I had you think about a time that you celebrated something, right? I told you to savor that memory and remember it for later. Okay, so take that memory out right now and relive it. And let me ask you this question. Were there people there with you in that moment? Do you remember who they were? Chances are the people who were with you there helped magnify that moment in your heart. Celebration is a shared experience. Celebration is something that you do with others. God made us to be social beings. He knew that it was not good for Adam to be alone. Celebration is one of those social interactions that encourages and uplifts and gives us hope. And the only really real way to do it is to do it with others. One more thing about celebration being a shared experience. In the context of living in the kingdom, celebration is something we share both horizontally with one another and vertically with God. We have to remember that our interactions with others have a spiritual component to them, always. God is omnipotent and omnipresent. So God is a part of every celebration. Or I should say, God is present at all times, and as we live in increasing measure in his kingdom, we should invite him into the celebrations that we have. Because ultimately, he is the reason why we celebrate. One of um, our Debbie and my family traditions is the prayer circle. Thanksgiving and Easter, birthdays and holidays, whenever we get together, we always end up circling up in the kitchen and we hold hands together and then someone prays a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing. It's a simple acknowledgement that God is in the room. God is in the moment. God is the giver of all that we have and is the one who sustains us. We celebrate God in community. And no family celebration of ours is complete without it. The last thing I want to share is that celebration is good for our souls. Here at Oak Hills, we've taught the importance of rest. You know, God commanded the Sabbath, which is based on his own seven days of creation, in order to give us time to rest and reflect and simply be with God and with one another. As a simple act of spiritual formation, we advocate regular times of rest every day, every week, and every year. There's this genius to the regularity of the Sabbath, a cycle that kind of matches the human cycle. Well, in the same way, God commanded these feasts on a regular basis also, because he knew that we needed them. We were created with an inborn need to celebrate, to laugh, to have fun. In a way, celebration is as important as eating or breathing or resting. And I believe that God commanded these cyclic periods of celebration for the same reason. Because celebration feeds our souls. So now, take that memory out one more time. Take it out again and think about it. Did it give you joy or hope? Did it feed your soul? I think the chances are that it did. Now, I know that some of you have had a tough and busy summer. Some of you haven't even taken any time off from your many commitments. And now the summer's almost over. Well, I'd like to encourage you that before everything in your life ramps right back up and you find yourself suddenly in the thick of it all, go find some time and some excuse to go out and just celebrate something and feed your soul with it. So, I've shared three aspects of celebration. Celebration as commemoration, celebration as shared experience, and celebration as good for our souls. Um, Now I'd like to briefly share how each of these three aspects applies to our gatherings here on Sunday morning. I want to share how these three aspects of celebration relate to the church. Let's talk about commemoration. Have you ever wondered why the Christian church gathers on a Sunday? I mean, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, and Sunday is the first day. Well, most scholars believe that the early church began adopting a gathering on Sunday to commemorate the the resurrection of Jesus, which happened on a Sunday. So 2,000 years later, we're still meeting on Sundays. So, our gathering on a Sunday morning is like a weekly commemoration of the resurrection. And let me put it another way. Every Sunday is a mini Easter. Every Sunday is a commemoration of Resurrection Sunday. Now, let's talk about celebration as shared experience. I've heard the argument for decades from people who say, Oh, I don't need a building or a time to worship our God. And you know what, I I have to agree with that. That's true. But remember, celebration only happens when you share the experience with others. So we don't need a building or a time, but we do need the fellowship of other followers of Jesus to support and encourage and to worship together. I want to make sure that I say this right. We need one another on Sunday morning. And when you decide to stay home instead of coming to church, those who are here lose the benefit of fullness of fellowship. When we are worshiping together and I look at you and you look at me, we strengthen the conviction of our words, our beliefs, our faith. And the same is true in celebration. One person raises their arms or claps their hands or does a little bit of this and it encourages the rest of us to do so too. You see, worship... Is not just a spiritual action. It is a physical action as well. Think of it this way. We worship with our minds and our hearts. And then that worship becomes incarnated. In other words, it is fleshed out from our internal self to the external world through the actions of our bodies. Just as God became incarnate in the person of Jesus. And then he fleshed out his love for us. So our worship, our love... For God should be fleshed out, should be incarnated through the postures and positions of our bodies. For we worship an incarnate God, do we not? Now, I don't intend to try to make you feel guilty, especially those of you who are home this morning watching on the live stream. (laughs) But I make no apologies for saying this. You should come to church. Every Sunday, you can. Not only for yourself, but for the sake of others, for the sake of the body. You demonstrate faith, hope, and love simply by your presence. Our presence preaches to one another. Your presence matters. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you in all honesty that the most uplifting, encouraging experiences I've ever had have been in the church. The most inspiring, creative things I've ever been a part of have been in church. The biggest gut-busting belly laughs I've ever had have been in church. And the most celebrative worship I've ever experienced have been in church. We all need to experience celebration on a regular basis. And it begins right here in this room, in worship, in fellowship, and before our God. Now, I'm pretty much done with my message now, except that as a worship arts pastor, I don't want to miss an opportunity to speak practically about our corporate worship here on Sunday mornings, especially what happens in this room. Even more specifically, I want to talk briefly about what it is to use our bodies in worship, and I can tell some of you are starting to get a little squirmy right now. Now, I know that worshiping with one's body is an uncomfortable stretch for some of you, But the Bible describes many bodily forms of corporate worship. Singing, shouting, clapping, hand-raising, dancing, drumming, bowing, serving, and giving sacrificially. So obviously the body plays an essential role in our worship of God. Let me give you one example, and we did this a little bit already today. Hand-raising. Now... I found an informative video that might help us with the posture of hand raising, and I'd like to play it for you right now. Okay. (laughs) All kidding aside, I know that there are a few people here in this room, a small minority, who desperately want to worship with more physical freedom, and they're being held back by some unspoken social norm that they feel. You want to worship with more abandon, but you don't feel like it would be appropriate here. Well, I want to speak directly to you guys now. If you feel like doing anything in that video, you have my permission to do so. I want you to feel the freedom to raise your hands, to sway, to pogo worship, to pass a kidney if you want to, okay? As your pastor, I authorize you, I give you permission worship in the way that you feel. Is that okay with you guys? Now, let me speak to the inhibited majority. (laughs) And my first confession is, there's way too much of me that is too much like you. So I, I know all the rationalizations that go on in your heads about bodily expressions of worship. For example, I hear people say something to the effect of this. Well, I don't feel like raising my hands, and I would feel like I'm faking it if I do. You see it as an integrity issue. You don't want to fake it, and I get that. But let me, let me remind you that God is worthy of our lifting our hands, regardless of whether we feel like it or not. So there are times when you need to will your body and allow your emotion to follow. I also get some people that tell me this. I don't want to be a distraction to others who are worshiping. So I don't raise my hands or, or move that much. And I understand this too at some level. But let me say that. Um, when I'm out here. When I'm up here and I'm looking at you guys. And I see some of you raising your hands. You lift my spirits. And you lift the spirits of those around you. You become a worship. Uh, an example of that worship incarnated. And you give people permission. To raise their hands as well. In other words you are a distraction in all the right ways. Does that make sense? So we're going to close our service in a minute with some celebrative worship. And I just think that we should practice for just a second. So everybody stand right now. We're all going to stand. We did this during our call to worship. Um, But uh, we're going to do it again for those who came a little late. Let's all raise our hands in a way that you want to raise them. Whatever way that feels appropriate to you, if you want a mafasa, that's fine. <laughs> now, as we do this, we're, ra- we're raising our hands for one reason, because he's worthy. But for a moment, I want you to look, stop looking at me and look at each other. See what that looks like? Isn't that glorious? When we worship together, I look in your eyes and you look in mine. And it raises the con- my conviction that our God is a good God. In, in some way, my story entwines with your story, which entwines with his story, which entwines with her story. And God, once again, creates that symphony in the universe. So we express our love to God, to, of God to God and as an encouragement to one another with this. Can we give ourselves permission to raise our hands together? Yes? All right. Now that you said that, let's all put our hands down. (laughs) And uh, as the band is now up, let's pray together. I want to go back to our scripture passage today, Psalm 98. I want to take you back to the idea of the new song. That the new song is not only the literal song that we sing with our lips... But metaphorically, it is a song that we sing with our lives. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we celebrate because you are our Savior. You are the Redeemer of all the universe. And you are the Delighter of our souls. We sing this new song now to you with our lips, with our bodies, and with our lives.